The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Katrina O'Sullivan is the author of Poor, Grit, Courage and the Life-Changing Value of Self-Belief. And Katrina, I hardly know where to start because there is so much in this book. You have lived such a full life, haven't you? I have, yeah, a full life. I'm a bit tired at this point, but yeah, full life, interesting life. Okay, you are a lecturer down in Manus University. The accent, just explain to people the accent, will you? Yeah, so like many people, uh, my dad would have left Dublin in the 60s and uh, went to the UK and so we were brought up as an Irish family in the in the middle of Bur- in the Midlands but I would have moved back I you know for me Ireland is home we've always grown up as an Irish family so the the twang the mixture of Britain and Ireland is in my accent because I have lived between both countries all my life Okay. And tell us a bit about your parents, because your parents had a tough life. Yeah, so my dad was adopted from Mercy Golden Bridge, and we all know the stories that have emerged about um, what happened to children there. So my dad was adopted at age five. He grew up in Clontarf. He had a lovely family, but I think whatever happened to my dad within that first five years of his life may have set in motion Um the life that he ended up living. So my dad, while he was this intelligent, vivacious man, he got a great leaving sir, got offered a place in college. He also, by the age of 18, had a, a developed an addiction. And my earliest memories of my dad, unfortunately, are of him injecting himself with heroin. And so my dad was this really bright, wonderful man, very loving, very kind, very but also very selfish and addicted to heroin. And similarly, my mom, so my mom is Irish family as well. She grew up in an alcoholic home. You know, part of my book is about how poverty is intergenerational and very difficult to escape. My mom also was a heroin addict. She grew up in poverty with violence in her childhood. And she actually met my dad at a bus stop in Coventry and he asked for directions. And she said, I'll come back to mine. And he never left. Um, Yeah, so the two of them together were these crazy hippie um, addicts who were on a path of destruction. At what age did you realise that that wasn't normal, that that wasn't how other children lived? Uh, we lived in this, uh, a really, a council estate in, in the middle of Coventry and next door neighbour's house was another Irish family. I remember being about four, I used to play with the little girl next door, we were best friends, daisy chains and wonderful stuff going on in the back garden. And I remember I, I used to see her mum call her in for lunch every day and then when she'd come back out, she'd pat her on the head or give her a hug and tell her that she loved her. And I think that was probably the first time I became aware that my mum wasn't like everybody else's mum. My mum was like a ghost. We never, She never really fed us. Um, so I think quite about age four, I think that's normal as well. I studied psychology, so I kind of have a bit of academic knowledge about it now. But back then, it was age four, I started to really notice that we were different. And even though there was a lot of addiction actually in our community, ours was on the most extreme level. So like even the kids who lived in our street, they might not have been nurtured the way affluent people are. There was still food and a bit of care there. With us, there was nothing. And then were their parents telling them, stay away from that girl, Katrina? She doesn't come from a good family. Yeah, that's interesting. I, re- I was back in England this week to, to do some filming for the BBC and I was with my friend from my childhood and her mum rang us. And her, it was actually really hard to hear because her mum said oh I used to say give her a wash because before she comes in the house and that hurt actually to hear because I never heard her say that but I always just think 
that's what she thought of us. So that, you know, I had this sense that we were smelly because we, we weren't washed. There was no soap in our house, no towels. So, um, yeah, I definitely was on... Well, it's really unfortunate when you're growing up like I did. You're not only left to your own devices, your own home, you're not looked after, you're not loved, but then you go out into society and because your house is impacting upon you you're also shunned a little bit in society then as well so other kids didn't want to play with me because I was smelly and I wet my bed so it's kind of like every area of my life is sad but it was also the case wasn't it that your home has been used by other drug addicts your parents friends yeah so that was probably another good reason why parents on the street did not want their children going to your house. Exactly, yeah. It's, oh, definitely. Like, if you imagine our road, like, our house was the one that had, like, old cars on the garden and un, it was unkempt. You know, there wasn't, it was, so it was quite obvious that we were, especially in our first home, our first two homes, it was quite clear that, that we were quite crazy. But you got to remember, <laughs> in council estates, like, in poverty, we're, we're all put in together. So, like, it wasn't unusual for there to be fights on our road, for families to be killing each other or whatever. So, like, we were a bad family, but there were other bad families as well because you're all corralled kind of together. Like, the council sticks you all in the same estate. So it wasn't unusual for, for families to be dysfunctional. I just think ours was quite extreme. And what age were you when your father was imprisoned? Oh, the first, well, actually, my dad was imprisoned when I was about three for the first time. I don't really remember that, but I do remember him going into prison when I was seven. So my dad was in prison three or four times. Now, he wasn't for what in- sort of reasons? So first was aggravated burglary, second time was drug dealing, third time was credit card fraud, and then finally drunk driving. And that was actually what sent him back to Ireland. Uh, he got remanded in custody in Birmingham for drunk driving, and when he got let out, he ran away and came back to Ireland because he didn't want to have to face... And in fairness, he sobered up, didn't he? He did, yeah. It's it's funny because in some senses my dad is the villain of my story you know obviously with his addiction but when my dad sobered up he actually was he became the hero in some senses because he was able to come back and kind of rescue me and my son from the poverty that we were living in and in some ways that's how I ended up in Dublin because my dad found sobriety and then came back and tried to rectify some of the harms that he'd done. What age were you when you had your first son? I was pregnant at 15, unfortunately. I wouldn't recommend that. I was pregnant. It was my destiny, though, I think. And I don't mean that in a positive way. I think girls like me, when you're not really... You don't really aspire to much because you're not shown much. Like, nobody really encouraged me to even finish school. Uh, there's one person who stands out who did encourage you. Mm. You had a teacher, an English teacher. Yes. Mr. Goulding, was it? Mr. Pickering. Pickering, sorry. Mr. Pickering, yeah. yeah. Mr. Pickering was actually... There's a couple of teachers that changed my life. I had a really good nursery school teacher who actually taught me how to wash. So she actually used to bring fresh underwear into into um, into school for me every day. And she took me into the bathroom and taught me how to wash. And she had this bag for me. So I used to head into school early and she'd I'd get changed. And she also gave us breakfast because I didn't eat. I didn't have food. But then Mr. Pickering, so that was really important, having a teacher that cared at a really young age. But Mr. Pickering was a teacher who kind of challenged me. He, he, could, he saw past the dysfunction because girls like me, 
I'm sitting in the back of the class. I'm like, I've got an attitude problem. I'm like not listening, but I am listening and I'm well capable. I just, I'm angry and her and society hasn't treated me very well. But this guy kind of seen that. And so he encouraged me in ways that I think is really important in education. The most important thing he did actually was share his own story with me. So he offered to, he asked me to do a job and then he told me he was a minor and he, he left school at 16 and then he went back to education later. And I was like shocked because usually t- for me teachers were these middle class people that I had nothing in common with and this kind of kind of shared his story with me and so yeah he was really pivotal and there's a really good story well a- an important story in my life in my book where it's parent teacher meeting and my my mum and dad never went to parent teacher meeting they were always drunk or drugged and uh, the door knocks and I open it and it's him, stand, Mr Pickering, standing at the door. I'm 14, thinking I'm in trouble. I thought, oh my God, what did I do? And he said, is your dad there? And I was like, yeah. So I called my dad and I stood behind the door and Mr Pickering says, I was expecting to see you at parent-teacher, Mr O'Sullivan. My dad was kind of like sheepish. I could hear him. And he said, I just wanted to tell you that your daughter is amazing. She's really intelligent and she's so much potential. And I think you're letting her down. And you could hear all this. I could hear it. How did you feel when you were I actually, this? in that moment, I felt like I grew two inches. Yeah. And I, I think it's really important that teachers understand the impact that they can have. Like, if you, if Mr. Pickering had, a, you know, measured my success by how I'd have done in school, he wouldn't have known, he would have thought that I'd failed because I ended up leaving at 15 and pregnant. But the truth is what he did for me lived on for the rest of my life. So eventually when I got the offer of going to Trinity College, the belief that he'd given me in myself, that moment and them moments when I was in college, they were there in me. And I think teachers need to understand that. that They may not see the impact, but it's there. And that belief that he had in me has lived on forever. Can I just take another diversion though? Because I was very interested in one section of the book where you yourself went into addiction mm-hmm. as a young mother, as a teenager yeah. and for whatever reasons. And you went to the Rutland Centre to yeah. try and get help and it didn't quite work out for you. And I was very taken by that because I think there is this belief that almost for some people you go and you get help and that sorts you out. But it's actually way harder than that. And people will tell you in these centres that people might have to be back three, four or five times and society doesn't necessarily understand or actually accept that. Oh, definitely. I mean, I wouldn't want to put anybody off going to the Rutland Centre because it actually gave me so many skills. Um, but as a as a young person, I was I was twenty one when I was in there. I was had had no therapy, had no understanding of addiction whatsoever, and addiction and healing not only from addiction but from trauma takes a long time and is it and and does often involve relapse and that's not to say that you know that it, it, it that doesn't mean it doesn't work but it's not a straight road often and we don't often it's not a miracle cure it's not a miracle cure but it is really important i'd never tell somebody not to do it yeah. because at the end of the day all of those things have contributed to where I am today. But it, <laughs> it really, it, it's a shocking experience for someone who's, tra- who's been through trauma to actually be so challenged. And yet, you write in the book, you didn't really consider yourself to be addicted to anything as such. Yeah, like, uh, you see, it's really hard for me because I, I always had this comparison with my parents. And there's always this judgment around 
well, there's a judgment around the type of drugs you took. I definitely am excessive in everything I do. Sure, I went to Trinity and I could, it wasn't enough to just do a PA, uh, an undergrad. I had to get a PhD as well. And I'm still thinking about going back again. No, I'm only joking. <laughs> <laughs> My husband wouldn't let me. But the truth is, there's, a, there's definitely, I think for me, in terms of I have significant trauma and I think that in some ways underpins this drive towards escaping and so like escape was my addiction and whether that was drugs drink foods relationships education there's always been an excess in me so it's not that I'm not an addict I don't drink now and I would call I'm sober and I'm delighted to be sober and I would encourage anybody to live that way but I would I just have always found it difficult to own that label but when you did drink and when you did take drugs, were you not in any way sort of put off by what you had seen your parents do and not say, well, I'm not going to go their way? It's so important, that message, is that, like, we moralise addiction so much as if it's a choice. It's mm. a bad... Like, I never wanted to take drugs. Like, I was that teenager was like, I'm never going to be like her. I'm never going to be like him. But there's so much more that drives our behaviour than our choice. Like, for me, like, all the things I'd been through, the poverty, the traumas, the, the, the friends that I had, the community, the opportunities, they all feed into the life that you live. And it's not that... So, like, I, I don't believe it was a choice necessarily. And every time I did take drugs, I didn't like it. I, I felt bad. I felt like I was failing myself because it was something I didn't want to do. But sometimes behaviour is driven by way more than just our capacity to choose. And I and I think right in my book, I, I describe addiction in a way which is like the person is so much more than just the drugs they use and the behaviour they have. Like, my parents didn't choose this life something else chose it for them unfortunately it led them down the road where five of their children were really hurt but uh yeah it's very complicated and i don't have all the answers i just know for me i choose not to take any substances today because not only does it make me feel bad but it also i'm excessive you say about your father becoming the hero of the story in the mm. sense of coming back and bringing you back to ireland your mother, there's also a line, I may not be quoting this entirely accurately, but I think she said to you at one stage that she loved you, but she just loved the drugs more. Yeah. So I was uh, working as a postdoc in the Trinity Access programs at the time, and um, I'd been in therapy a long time at this point, but obviously, like, my mum never got recovery. She never got sober, so it was, she never really, it, we were never able to heal our relationship fully. But I was healing at that time, and I, I had this instinct... Like my mum was close to death at that point. She'd been she'd she'd been very sick. She'd had a liver transplant, and I was sitting in my office, and I was like, "Just did she ever love me?" And so I rang her, and usually when I called my mum, because I'm quite outwards, and I I would challenge her addiction sometimes. It was always tense between us, and I rang her, and I just said, "Look, mum, I just have to ask you a question." And she's like, "Of course." And I was like, "Did you ever love me?" And she's like, "Oh, my Katrina, I, I loved you so much." I just loved gear more. And like even How did you feel when she said that? I to felt you? relieved. Really? I felt so relieved because I knew that. Like like my mum was driven by something more than her love for her children. Like my mum, you know, was a sex worker when when I was a child. And I remember her like my book doesn't cover my adulthood, the full adulthood. And in our adult life together, me and my mum went to therapy together. We had discussions. And in one of them discussions, like we'd had a similar kind of conversation. When she talked about the, the sex work, she said, I, all I thought was, I just need to get enough money for drugs and, and chips for the kids. 
I was actually going to call my book chips for the kids, but we changed it. But like, I know that's hard for someone else to understand who hasn't been through it. But for me, it was a relief. Her honesty was a relief because I knew that to be true. And also, it just depicted to me how difficult it is. It's not that she didn't love me. She just had this other illness that was driving her. There's so much more and don't have time to comfort you to get to it. But what was writing the book like for you? It was actually a really emotional experience. The one thing I I will say, it's been lovely to be able to rediscover my mum. You know, Tilly was a really complex person, but she actually was so vivacious and so much fun. And a lot of people actually would say, oh, your dad is the reason why you're here. But I write about the fact that, like, my mum had this spirit where, and it might have gone the wrong way. Uh, She might have been telling people not to tell her what to do. But actually, I feel as if I've been able to rediscover her and see the fact that her spirit is in me. And writing the book has been an amazing experience. I'd recommend it to anyone. And even if it doesn't sell, for me as a human, it's been a wonderful experience. And you're now lecturer in the Department of Psychology in Maynooth University. And you do work for Microsoft and various others. Yeah. So, yeah. How could you ever have imagined that as a teenager that you'd end up doing something like that? This must be an unimaginable life that you have now. It, it is. And I, I honestly live most days in, in the gratitude feeling. Like, that, there's, a, there's a happiness. Like, I was a cleaner in Connolly Station. Like, I was the dinner lady in the Institute of Education. I, I pinch myself most days. Like, when I'm in, in work, actually, and some of the staff are giving out about their lives or the job, I'm like, this is an amazing life. This is an amazing job. So I'm very, very very privileged and very grateful for the life that I have and I'm really aware of where I come from and I actually feel quite privileged to have been poor because it gives me a perspective on life. No resentment about it? Um, I resent the system more than the people. So like my parents... I have no resentment towards. I love them and I really understand that they yeah, weren't the well. social workers have? I mean, you spoke about the likes of teachers who've helped, the, the nursery teacher, yeah. your English teacher. Did the system actually try and help you in social services uh, in England? I think, yeah, it, some of it did and some of it didn't. So I was let down a lot. So in terms of education, it's not enough to have one or two good teachers in the system. Like, everybody should be good. Like, so from my point of view... The, the expectation for a girl like me is just to finish. It's the same now here in Ireland. So, you know, if you're going to a desk school, you're coming from a disadvantaged background, success is getting your leaving, sir. And the truth is, like, that limits what you, you think you can be and what you think you can do. So, like, it, I spent a very a good few years thinking that I wasn't very clever, I didn't have any potential, and then all of a sudden I accidentally found myself in the Trinity Access Programme through a friend of mine who'd done the course, who told me about it. And I'm getting a first. I'm like, I'm actually, I actually think I'm better than some of the other students because I've got all this stuff going on. But I'd grown up... You have a lived understanding. But I'd grown up thinking that I wasn't good enough. And that wasn't good enough didn't come from my parents. It came from the communication from the system in which I lived. Now, I'm also very grateful for the system that I had in the Celtic Tiger because I was able to avail of grants, childcare. I stayed on the RAS scheme. I was supported all the way through until I was ready to let go of that life and move into this wonderful life. I've written this book because now, if I was now, if it was today and that girl wanted to go to Trinity today, I wouldn't be able to do it. And I think it's important to highlight that, that we're not investing anymore in poverty. And that lack of investment means like girls like me can't succeed and be as amazing as we are because I'm actually contributing massively now to the world. I don't mean that in an egotistical way. No, no. I just mean that like I'm changing policy, I'm building programs just because I've been able to to flourish and the system allowed that in Ireland and now it's not allowing it happen. The book 
is poor. Katrina O'Sullivan. Dr. Katrina O'Sullivan, thank you so much for being with us here on The Last Word. Thank you, Matt. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30. Today.